Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 56th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. For today's episode, we're talking the latest on clean energy legislation here in North Carolina to find out how one very important group of stakeholders is approaching the conversation. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Before we talk with our guests, though, we've got a few updates to share with the group. First up, it's National Clean Energy Week. This year, it's from September 20th through the 24th, and is a celebration of the policies, industries, and innovations that power our lives with little to no carbon emissions. Throughout the week, you'll have a chance to participate in a number of exciting events, including the Virtual Policymaker Symposium, where people like Jigger Shaw, Senator Dan Sullivan, and David Turk of DOE will be keynoting. To keep up with all the events and happenings during the week, visit nationalcleanenergyweek.org. Next up on the events radar, NCSEA will be hosting the last of its Making Energy Work webinars on October 27th with a legislative recap from this year's long session and a preview of what's to come in future policy conversations here in the state. This webinar is sponsored by Pinegate Renewables and Kairos Government Affairs. To register for the free webinar, visit makingenergywork.com. To pivot to some recent news here in North Carolina, it appears that the state is queued up for another wind project in the eastern part of the state. This project is otherwise referred to as Timber Mill Wind and is being developed by Apex Clean Energy to interconnect within PJM territory. The 189 megawatt project has been in development for a number of years, but it slowed down with the implementation of an 18-month wind moratorium issued as part of HB 589 back in 2017. Apex filed a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity with the Utilities Commission earlier this summer on June 14th, indicating their intent to move forward with the project. Further, Apex Clean Energy plans to begin construction in 2022. We'll keep following this project to provide you updates along the way towards North Carolina's second onshore wind farm. All right, we're keeping it short for today's introduction and jumping right into today's episode. It's time to jump back in and address the big hairy elephant in the room, H951. The bill that's been looming over the legislative session this year with some in favor and many opposed. As of recording this episode, the bill itself is still in a holding pattern over in the North Carolina Senate, awaiting committee hearing before making it to a potential floor vote. On today's episode, we're featuring a guest who represents a number of big time players here in the state, with a real stake in how energy is regulated and what policies are adopted moving forward. So with that teaser, let's go ahead and kick off the 56th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our next guest is the manager for state policy at Ceres, a national nonprofit organization working to transform the economy to build a just and sustainable future for people and the planet. Our guest leads Ceres' state policy work here in North Carolina and other southeastern states where she works with major businesses and investors across the region who are interested in scaling up renewable energy and clean transportation and using energy more efficiently in order to tackle the challenge of climate change. Friends of the Pod, 
please welcome Brianna Estevez, Manager of State Policy at Ceres. Brianna, welcome to the pod. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. We're so excited to have you on this episode uh, to talk about all of your work in, in North Carolina, uh, but we know that that you and your organization, Ceres, uh, does a lot more than, than just North Carolina. Um, so just to back up a little bit, can we start by having you provide a, a quick overview of Ceres, your history as an organization, and what it is that you do? Sure thing. So, so Ceres was founded in 1989, actually in response to the Exxon Valdez oil spill. So I think a lot of folks here around, around that time are quite familiar with it, but Essentially, what happened was this, this big, huge ship owned by Exxon uh, crashed off the coast of Alaska, and it spilled almost 11 million gallons of oil into the sound there. And so the spill devastated the local economy, as well as the environment, of course. But it also hit Exxon with more than a half billion dollars in liabilities. And so, you know, in response to this event, a small group of investors got together uh, and they put forward what was then a pretty radical idea. The idea being that corporations need to act more responsibly and do a better job in both assessing and addressing their risks. And so in this case, you know, Exxon's failure to proactively address their risks, which was prevent a massive oil spill, right? It, it led to a really disastrous situation for the company and for its shareholders also for the environment, and then also for those uh, dependent on the region's economic stability for their for their livelihood. And so, you know, over the years, Ceres' work has, has evolved, but we're really still tr- true to this mission. And so, so today, Ceres is a national nonprofit that's focused on building a more just and sustainable economy. So uh, we work with both investors and corporations now, uh, really with the goal of helping or sometimes convincing um, major Fortune 500 companies to change their internal practices to integrate sustainability and responsibility into their corporate decision making. Uh, And then on top of that, which is what I do, uh, we also work with a group of dozens of major businesses that want to make it clear to governments and to lawmakers that they need to set policies to transition us to a net zero clean energy economy. So these businesses that we, that, that we work with, um, they really see man-made climate change as a risk to their business, but they also all see clean energy as a really attractive economic opportunity. And so they've been working with us for over a decade now to engage policymakers on these issues at the state level and the federal level, and including here in North Carolina. And, um, I am curious, is there a story behind the name Ceres? How did that come about? So the name Ceres actually started as an acronym. It was a Coalition of Environmentally Responsible Economies. And of course, that's a mouthful. Uh, and so we decided to change the name to lowercase and just go by Ceres. Okay. As somebody who's worked at a number of organizations, this is not a knock on any of these organizations whatsoever. Somebody that's worked at a number of organizations that are, are very long in their name. I, I can understand and appreciate uh, having an acronym for your, your organization. Uh, so, so uh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one, one strategy that, and, and you've kind of outlined this a little bit in, in the background of series, uh, that has, you all have effectively leveraged is working through Fortune 500 companies and other for-profit entities to affect clean energy and climate-related issues. So why has this been an effective strategy for your organization? Well, Matt, 
so unfortunately, there's there's this myth out there, and I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a myth that you can't have environmental policies and also have economic growth at the same time. You know, we hear that again and again, and, you know, for years and still to this day, you know, especially the heavy polluting industries still promote this this myth. But, but you know, really, who better to bust this myth than, than influential members of the business community itself? And so, um, you know, that's kind of what we do, and that's our bread and butter. And, and you know, there's definitely also this assumption out there that corporations don't care where their energy comes from so long as it's reliable and it's cheap, right? Um, but by and large, we found that that's not true. So, um, you know, we actually conducted a, a study with NCSCA, actually, um, um, and we found that there are, that of the 50 largest private employers in North Carolina, at least 30 of them have set some sort of green, greenhouse gas reduction goal or a clean energy target. And so that's significant, and that's a significant amount of the state's largest employers. And so really when you're working with employers this large and this integral to the state's economy, lawmakers tend to listen. Yeah, and and we've seen that in the past, right, when it comes to different bills down at the legislature. Uh, I, you know, the, the, the one that comes to mind, and it's a little bit outside of the, the clean energy ecosystem, is HB2 here in North Carolina. But we've seen it with other energy legislation uh, that's popped up over the years too, and and how powerful of a voice that the corporate community has here in the state, and you know, in even even in the clean energy community itself, one thing that we've highlighted in some of the economic development studies that we've partnered with uh, with groups like E2, you know, there's 112,000 jobs in clean energy here in North Carolina, right? Um, and that's in the the industry itself. But when you start adding up all the jobs in these corporations that you're talking about here in, in the state, I mean, it's it's huge, right? So definitely a lot of leverage there. So recently, Ceres took lead on organizing a letter from a number of prominent companies with operations in the state, including Google, Sierra Nevada, and Nestle, just to name a few, uh, who are in opposition to the Comprehensive Energy Bill H951 uh, that's currently over in the Senate right now. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why these businesses are opposed to the bill in its current form? Well, it depends how much time you have, Matt. Uh, but I'd say, you know, the short answer is that uh, businesses resoundingly found that House Bill 951 would, would do much more harm than good, right? Um, so so a few things that, that are probably easiest to pull out here, you know, I think while on the surface, it looks like the bill is, is pretty good for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, Really, as they say, the devil is in the details, right? So, you know, for instance, the bill uh, would permanently close a few coal plants. It sounds great for the environment. Um, but the truth is that those plants are hardly operating to begin with because they're too expensive to run. Um, you know, the other thing that's in this bill, uh, it would legislatively mandate a couple of those coal plants to be converted to natural gas plants. Um, and in my opinion, and legislatively mandating new natural gas is a pretty radical move these days, um, particularly given that experts, you know, don't see gas as a viable form of energy in the next 20, 30 years, you know, given its impact to the environment and pending regulations. And, and you know, as clean energy solutions become cheaper and cheaper, it, it will get beat out. Right. And so. Um, but sadly, uh, the way the utility law is structured in North Carolina, ratepayers would be, quote unquote, on the hook for paying for these plants for several years beyond this. And so it would really lock folks in uh, to new natural gas. And then uh, thirdly, you know, at the same time, there are a lot of considerable concerns about costs to ratepayers with regards to this bill. 
Um, so that's why the businesses that we work with have been standing alongside folks like the North Carolina Manufacturers Association and KUKA and the textile groups and scores of other uh, businesses and ratepayer advocates across North Carolina really vocally expressing their concerns with this bill. Um, so in summary, not only is House Bill 951 a bad deal for the environment, but it's also a bad deal for anyone that pays electricity bills. So one thing the letter mentioned was the lack of access to affordable clean energy in the state. What sort of programs or reforms would the business community like to see to enable better access to clean energy? I think uh, one thing that was specifically highlighted in that letter was more opportunities around competitive procurement of renewable energy as well. Um, so yeah, you know, just highlighting some of the programs that the business community might like to see on this front. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I think your listeners already know, and so I don't have to go into detail that, you know, there's given the structure of energy policy in North Carolina, pretty much any customers that are in Duke Energy Service territory have to go through Duke if they want to use renewable energy, right? I mean, there are a few exceptions, but pretty much that is the rule. And especially for the larger customers that we work with, the businesses, they're reliant on Duke Energy to be offering renewable energy programs. <clears throat> so, this really hasn't worked out so well to date in North Carolina, um, particularly for those larger energy users. And so in response to this, I will give the legislature some credit because in 2017, in the energy bill there, House Bill 589, the legislature did require Duke to offer uh, large energy users a program called Green Source Advantage. Um, I'd say while this program is far from perfect, it has helped a few major electricity users access renewable energy. So, um, so, so there's benefit there, and, and we've seen some some progress. There are some some negative parts <laughs> to, to the GSA, as I'll call it. So, you know, there's there's a program cap of 600 megawatts, and so that to begin with means that there's a limited number of customers that can actually participate in the program. And once it gets uh, filled up, uh, there's no more Green Source Advantage program for new customers to take advantage of. And I'd, I'd say that it really is only an accessible and affordable program for some of the largest of Duke Energy's customers. It's really complicated. Um, folks that we work with say that they need a whole energy team to figure out how, how to make it work for them and, and how to make the economics work out. And so it definitely has some shortcomings. So I think there are some opportunities to improve that program or do something like that. Um, and, you know, now I will say the current energy bill, so, so House Bill 951, does have a couple of provisions that would create some some new customer renewable energy programs. So there's the shared solar program and there's a community gardens program as well. In my opinion, that's probably the best part of the whole bill uh, is these uh, new customer renewable energy programs. Um, but I'd say even the bill language around these programs um, would require a cost premium for anyone to participate. And as we know well, solar is cheap enough these days that it should help customers save money, not cost them more. And so there are some shortcomings to those programs that are being proposed. And so, Matt, you mentioned uh, competitive procurement. And, and, you know, we know that in other states, customers can access renewable energy much easier and, and much more cheaply, to be honest, right? And so they might have access to a wholesale market like the neighboring state Virginia does, um, or they might be able to um, permit um, to purchase energy directly from a competitive energy supplier. And so those are those are some really good opportunities um, for companies that are not available in North Carolina. Or they might be lucky and they might have a similar utility structure, but they're able they, they're able to work with a utility that actually offers attractive and cost competitive renewable energy programs. And so 
there are a lot of opportunities in, in that sense. And, and oftentimes, so our letter also mentions competitive procurement in terms of, you know, the price of renewable energy. And so this might not be directly accessing renewable energy for a customer, but if they're taking energy off the grid, they want that energy to be, you know, as cheap as possible, but also clean. And so the ideal would, that would be if there is a program, for instance, a House Bill 951 has a requirement um, for um, X number of gigawatts of, of new solar to be added to the grid. The preference would be for that energy to be competitively procured so that the price is as cheap as possible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, since you did mention the Green Source Advantage program, it's I think it's important to note that we have seen the business community take advantage of, of the program to date. We've seen groups like Bank of America and Wells Fargo participate. Um, but we've also heard from a number of others that it's been difficult to make pencil out. Uh, and and to your point as well, there there is a cap on that program. Right. So uh, it, it definitely limits the the opportunities that are there for you know, the sheer amount of companies that we have in the state that have set really ambitious ESG and sustainability and carbon cutting targets, right? Um, So another component of that same letter uh, was reemphasizing the authority granted to the North Carolina Utilities Commission to balance and protect the best interests of ratepayers and the utilities in the state. So why is this important and why was it important enough to call out in this letter? Yeah, well, as you say, Matt, and as I said earlier, you know, and the purpose of the Utilities Commission is to balance the best interests of ratepayers and the best interests of the utilities. Um, so in a state like North Carolina, where you have a, a granted monopoly utility, um, and that utility happens to have dozens of lo- lobbyists and ownership over all the data and lots of power, you know, really, the utility's interest is pretty well protected, right? And so, so in my view, Personally, what the Utilities Commission is really around for is to protect ratepayers, um, you know, by making sure that the best decisions are being made to ensure reliability, but also so that everyday people and businesses aren't overpaying or paying for things that they don't need. So when lawmakers are proposing to tie the hands of the Utilities Commission like they do a lot of times throughout House Bill 951, you know, really what they're doing is hurting ratepayers at the end of the day. And, and, and talking about lawmakers tying the hands of, you know, regulatory bodies uh, or executive sort of uh, commissions, uh, one thing that was also highlighted in that letter was the need to keep the door open on conversations around bigger picture items like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and market reform studies. So why are conversations like these of interest to the business community as well? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, really, markets are the backbone of the country, right? Uh, that's kind of what we're built on. That's what we're all about. And, and businesses, of course, like markets. Um, you know, they encourage competition, they promote innovation, and they keep prices low. With regard to the market reform study, I'll start there. Energy technologies have changed really significantly over the past decade. Um, you know, And and typically, when there is this much change and innovation in any heavily regulated industry, you know, states should probably be constantly evaluating whether the systems they've set up long ago still best serve and meet the needs of their people and their economy, right? So, So states should really be asking themselves, you know, is there a system out there that might be more cost effective to ratepayers? You know, could other structures make it easier for businesses to access renewable energy, uh, et cetera? And so, you know, these are questions that should be addressed and assessed and studied. And uh, South Carolina is doing it. Why is it North Carolina? 
Um, and then in regards to Reggie, I mean, speaking of markets, I mean, if your goal is to rein in carbon emissions, what better way is there for the economy than to do this through a market-based system? So, you know, a lot of the businesses we work with in North Carolina also have operations in other Reggie states, which, you know, is, is Virginia up and through Maine, right? And so Reggie has been in place for over a decade in those states. And it's really just been a resounding success for both emissions as well as for the economy. So um, the electricity rates have actually gone down in Reggie states, uh, and their program has attracted a ton of new investments in jobs and in the green economy. So, you know, while the idea of Reggie might be new for North Carolina, it doesn't make sense in our view to preemptively shut the door on this conversation on something that's been a success and it could be successful in North Carolina. And I'd say especially, you know, at a time when the federal government, um, you know, there could be some federal climate regulations coming around the corner, Reggie could very well be the best game in town to comply with those. And so I don't think it makes sense to shut the door uh, and nor do our businesses. Really good point. And as, as somebody who also studies other markets as well, like Virginia and throughout the Southeast, you've seen firsthand how some of these programs really, you know, push the industry forward in terms of deployment of new clean energy technologies and in actuality don't harm the market like some claim that they might. Uh, so since issuing that letter, has your team or any of the businesses received feedback or responses from state lawmakers? Truth, really. I mean, there hasn't been too much direct response since the letter went out. I mean, the reason that we uh, put the letter out in the first place and why businesses are, you know, coming to our knocking on my door saying we need to we need to do something here. Um, you know, I, I would say so before we released the letter, there were um, we had several meetings with lawmakers and they were, um, you know, private meetings and, and businesses joined us. And and, you know, despite telling us that they understand the bill kept moving forward. Right. And so. So we felt the need to go public with our concerns and, and to release this letter and, and really join the scores of other businesses doing so, expressing their concerns. And so we haven't really heard from anyone since, um, but hopefully they heard our message and that's what's most important. Have you have you heard any sort of preliminary discussions about revisions to the bill based on some of the, the, the suggestions that were made in, in your letter and others within the clean energy community like North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association? Truthfully, I haven't heard a thing. Uh, maybe others have, but uh, the, the letter at least haven't, hasn't opened the door um, to me beyond able to participate in those conversations. One reason, amongst a number of others, uh, that we see businesses set up fairly sizable operations here in the state is relatively low cost of energy. We hear that from economic developers, state representatives, that this is one of the, the top sort of considerations that companies have when they decide to relocate to the state of North Carolina. So do you foresee that the implementation of new clean energy programs uh, or the expansion of existing clean energy programs would negatively impact or raise electricity prices for commercial and industrial entities here in the state? Definitely not. I mean, the devil's in the details, of course, um, but clean energy programs on their own should not be raising rates or anything like that if they're designed correctly. Um, you know, businesses are not just looking for clean energy out of the goodness of their hearts. Uh, they know that clean energy actually helps them save money, right? Um, we know that the levelized cost of clean energy is, is oftentimes cheaper than or at cost parity with traditional fossil fuel energy. And, and then when you add in things like energy storage, it can also be just as reliable, right? And so, 
Um, so I, I definitely don't think, uh, you know, adding in new clean energy programs would, would add costs. If anything, it would help satisfy the companies that are looking for that clean energy. And actually, since you've mentioned businesses that are, you know, setting up operations or in North Carolina, I'd say, you know, a lot of the businesses that have recently announced plans to expand their operations in North Carolina or even come to the state for the first time. So, you know, Apple, Google, Biogen and Nestle, just to name a few, all of them have goals to power their operations with 100% renewable energy. So they definitely want cleaner options. And and to that point, we're talking about the positive momentum we see from large corporations like Sierra Nevada um, and Google, Apple, and establishing strong and ambitious ESG goals, um, particularly things like renewable procurement and deployment targets. So can you talk about that particular topic, the trends we're seeing on that front, and how it's been a key driver in conversations around energy? Yeah, and, and honestly, working in the ESG space, it feels like more and more businesses are announcing ambitious sustainability goals every week. I see more and more things coming across my inbox. And you know whether that's committing to 100% renewable energy or doubling the efficiency of their operations or committing to net zero greenhouse gas emissions across their entire value chain. And these ambitious targets are, are really being set for multiple reasons, and these reasons often vary among different companies, right? Um, but one of the reasons is that bringing us back to, to where I, what I was saying about risks earlier on, businesses recognize the huge economic risk of climate change, right? So, you know, as we look across the country and the world and we see what's going on with droughts and hurricanes, et cetera, right? Um, we know that, that this is not just a long-term threat anymore. So, so businesses see this as a huge financial risk um, and, and a huge impact to their bottom line potentially. And so they know that reducing their own emissions and pushing for policies that transition to a clean energy economy is key to preventing a, a negative outcome. The second reason that companies set these targets are, are really because their stakeholders are demanding it, right? So, you know, it could be their customers, their employees, their shareholders, or even the kind of the pesky watchdog NGO across the street, um, whom, whom I've been friends with. Businesses are increasingly expected to set and, and meet ambitious sustainability targets. And, and, and actually, the more companies that set targets, the more others are expected to do so as well. And so there's that domino effect with these targets. And that's why we see them come out more and more often. Um, and then, of course, there's the purely financial reason, right? Um, as we talked about again and again during this conversation, you know, clean energy can be delivered affordably and reliably and free from, you know, the, the unpredictability of fossil fuel prices. And so even just looking at that uh, pure, pure financial reason, you know, why wouldn't you want to move in the direction of clean energy anyway? So as part of the role of series approaching corporations, large corporations that maybe have not bought on to the, the clean energy train just yet and convincing them of the profitability of the savings of the benefits that it can bring and helping to guide them along a pathway of, of getting to a point where they announce these, these new goals as a company. Absolutely. We have a whole team of folks that, that help companies kind of make that internal business case and understand the, the, the you know, economic reason for making these goals and for transitioning to clean energy. Um, we're, really, we're really glad to work with the leaders of their sectors and, and kind of showing what's possible. Um, and so those are a lot of the members that engage with us on policy. They're, they're already there. They did the calculations. They know what's there and they're kind of 
they're they're setting the stage for what can happen and showing others. And so we're able to to show them as examples um, for others. And then the other piece of this too is that um, the next wave of expectations is about a business's supply chain. And so even if you're not a consumer facing company and have that brand name and brand recognition, you're now hearing from the companies that are consumer facing that are might be your customers and saying, where are your goals? What, you know, you need to be committing to clean energy. You need to be sourcing 100% renewable. And so um, we're seeing that come through as well. So as a whole, why is it important for the business community to see real progress being made towards Governor Cooper's emissions reduction goals established under Executive Order 80 here in the state? Yeah, so businesses want to see kind of policy certainty, right? And and they know that we need to move the economy into a, a low carbon, uh, you know, zero carbon, really, um, environment. And so especially at the state level, as we've seen with, with changes of, of, I'd say, kind of policy whim on these issues at the federal level, it's just really key for states to be the one making real progress on emissions reductions. I don't think um, we can really rely on the federal government to make these decisions for us. We simply don't have the time for one. But then also states are where the real life kind of roll up your sleeve policymaking happens anyway. And so that's where this makes the most sense. Um, so the businesses that we work with, we're really pleased to see the leadership behind Executive Order 80. And, you know, I actually really credit the Cooper administration and the folks over at DEQ for really helping to kind of change the conversation around emissions reductions in North Carolina through this EO80 process. I've been working uh, in North Carolina as a serious state policy lead for, I think, four or five years now. And, and I've noticed a change over that time and how I'm able to talk about things, <laughs> uh, which is pretty refreshing. And I was actually really glad to see the legislature in, in House Bill 951 really acknowledge the importance of carbon reductions for North Carolina's economy. And so, you know, I see real leadership going on here in the state. It's really just a matter of getting the details right. So you mentioned policy certainty. Uh, there is quite a bit of uncertainty still around H951. Are there additional plans to mobilize the business community around this bill? Uh, or is it kind of a, a wait and see as this, this bill potentially moves to some sort of committee and floor vote in the future? We're in a wait and see, Matt. You know, I think unlike some of the other interested parties, you know, we don't have infinite uh, resources at our disposal. And so until we know what what can be next, you know, we made our point. Uh, We hope folks are listening to us and we're happy to answer questions and to chat more about it. Um, But but for now, we're in a a holding pattern. Brianna, thank you so much for for joining us today to talk a little bit more about your work with Ceres and the Fortune 500 companies that you work with in North Carolina and all across the country, and giving us a little bit of a glimpse into how the business community views uh, energy legislation here in North Carolina, in particular 951. Uh, so we'll definitely want to stay in contact to, to you know as this bill continues to move forward uh, to figure out exactly where the business community is going to be, and if there is some sort of bill that passes, how this may impact them in the future. So I'm looking forward to inviting you back on for a future episode to talk more about how this all unfolds and to talk more about potential opportunities for clean energy within the business community as well. So, Brianna, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. Appreciate it. My key takeaway from today's episode is that North Carolina is in need of an affordable and accessible clean energy program that enables our businesses to meet their clean energy goals. 
We've gotten a glimpse of the appetite that businesses have here in the state through the competitive procurement for a renewable energy program. However, that program comes with some real limitations, including a cap on the total amount of megawatts that can be administered. The business community in our state is instrumental in moving forward our clean energy agenda and brings a lot to the table when it comes to the development of future policies and regulations. Hopefully, we'll see updated legislation that addresses some of the concerns they've outlined in their letter to legislators. We'll include a link to that letter in today's show notes for you to dive into more detail. And that does it for today's episode. But before you go, we've got another episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell you the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of the communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we're headed over to Pascatank and Perquimans County. And to lead us on this journey is NCSEA's own Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. Hello, squeaky cleaners. Your ever-loyal wayfaring companion and fellow Duplin County native Daniel Pate here for this episode of The Solo Traveler. I think it's appropriate to make a tweak to the name of the episode today as we explore a different clean energy technology that has been an economic boon for a particular area of North Carolina. So hold on to your hats and your fanny packs as for this edition, we bring you The Wind Traveler. After exploring New Hanover County in our last episode, we're going to stay in the eastern part of the state and head up the coast to Pasquotank and Perquimans counties. This area is just west of the Outer Banks and less than an hour's drive south of Norfolk, Virginia. Towns that you can find in these counties include Hertford, Windfall, and Elizabeth City. This area is also home to a couple of military base locations, including Harvey Point Defense Testing Activity Facility, which was established during World War II and served as a base to help planes that were carrying out submarine surveillance off of the Atlantic coast. It now houses special military air operations. It's used for counterterrorism courses. And there's also the Coast Guard Air Station in Elizabeth City, which was also used during World War II. And it currently provides a variety of mission support services and is an important part of the county's heritage and economy. But now on to the main focus of this episode, as we talk about the Amazon Wind Farm, also known as Desert Wind. This wind farm is powered by NCSEA member Avon Grid. This is the first wind farm in the Southeast. It started producing power in 2017, and it consists of 104 turbines. That's on land leased from 60 landowners. The total generating capacity of this wind farm is 208 megawatts, which is approximately enough to power 60,000 homes a year. This wind farm allows farmers to maintain their operations. And of the approximately 22,000 acres of farmland, the actual footprint of the entire wind farm project is less than 200 acres 
meaning farmers are able to maintain their current crops in tandem with wind farm operations. According to Avangrid, some economic benefits of this wind farm include $1.1 million annual amount benefiting the community, over $500,000 in annual taxes, making the wind farm the largest taxpayer in both Perquimans and Pasquotank counties, over $620,000 in annual lease payments to landowners, and now there is currently 17 full-time workers that operate the wind farm. And I will say, having seen this wind farm in person, these turbines are truly a spectacle to look at. If you haven't yet, next time you're on your way to the Outer Banks or up to Eastern Virginia, I recommend you take a drive through. Hope you enjoyed this segment of The Wind Traveler. I'm going to breeze on out of here. I hope to see you next time as we return to our regularly scheduled solar traveler programming. does it for this version of the North Carolina <laughs> wind traveler as Daniel previously mentioned if you haven't made it out to see these turbines in person they're quite the sight in fact the turbines are around 92 meters or just over 300 feet tall to their hub and you know the deal let's stay in touch on Twitter give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas questions for our next episode thoughts on today's episode and your worst energy joke one-liners And episode 56 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast within your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.